So as we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer over the last number of weeks, we know, according to Luke, that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. It's a common request. Even up to our own day, all who truly love the Lord Jesus Christ, all who truly desire growth in their spiritual lives, desire growth in their prayer lives. And as you no doubt experience in your prayers, when you pray and while you're praying, it is not an easy practice. If you're anything like me, prayer is difficult. And do you know why it's difficult? It's because prayer enters into the fray of a battle. Prayer enters into the the fray of a battle against, as Ephesians 6 tells us, the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We enter into this battle when we pray. And for this reason, the Apostle Paul would go on to exhort the Ephesian believers to equip themselves with the spiritual armor that is at their disposal, given to them by the Lord as they fight the battle. As he says in Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, making supplication for all the saints. That's important. All the saints. Because as if, hopefully if you've noticed the Lord's Prayer as we've been working through, everything's in the plural. Right? Give us this day. Forgive us our debt. Lead us not into temptation. The Lord's Prayer is the prayer of supplication for all the saints. Not just your own stuff, but all the saints' necessities. And so while we engage in a prayer battle against the forces of evil... We also pray, as we pray this prayer, for the Lord's strength and the Lord's empowerment to defeat the temptations, to defeat the lures, to defeat the enticements that come against us from our own desires to sinful deeds. We pray for protection against the sins of idolatry, the sin of ingratitude, sexual temptation, pride, greed, unforgiveness, and the numerous other sinful deeds and dispositions and temptations that assail us every single day of our lives. Prayer is vitally important to your increasing victory, your increasingly peace-filled life of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. We need prayer. And one of the common questions that I get about prayer is not only how do we pray. Jesus has set that out in the Sermon on the Mount here, and we've been working through that. But another question we get is why? Why pray? If it is true, and and, and it is, that God has ordained and decreed the outcomes of all things, if he has predetermined if he has a predetermined plan for the unfolding of creation's history <clears throat> if he had before the foundation of the earth foreordained all the events that would come to pass for example in the old testament that he would choose abraham and israel 
that Israel would go into Egypt and subsequently be delivered from Egypt, that he would bring them into the promised land, that he would exile them from the promised land, that the, prophets, uh, the promises of the prophets would come to pass. If the Lord had already determined <clears throat> before the foundation of the world that he would send our Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, come to us in the flesh to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect sinless life, to endure a horrendous and torturous crucifixion at the hands of the Romans by instigation of the Jewish religious leaders. If it was preordained that Christ would be buried in Joseph of Arimathea's brand new unused tomb, that Jesus would raise, rise from the dead and ascend to the right hand of God the Father in heaven, if the Lord has already promised that his kingdom will come as Israel repents and believes in Jesus by grace through faith in him, and as a result Jesus will return and establish his earthly kingdom, reigning from Jerusalem in fulfillment of the promises that he's made to David and to Israel from the mouths of his prophets. If the Lord has already determined and ordained the ultimate defeat of Satan, of death, and of Hades, as all of these are thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death, according to Revelation 20 and 21, while all whose names are recorded in the book of life are blessed by God and given the privilege of living in the holy city, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from God as a bride adorned for her husband, where the dwelling place of God will be with mankind as he dwells with us as our God and we dwell with him as his people. If all of these events are preordained by the Lord, such that they will come to pass exactly as Scripture declares, if nothing can hinder, if nothing will hinder the progress of God's plan, why pray? Let me just say, that's a great question, and I'm so glad you asked. First, we pray because our God has ordained that all of these wonderful realities, all of these His plans are brought about by and as a result of our prayers. God has designed His plans in creation in such a way that the prayers of His children are indispensable to the progress of His plans. And so we pray, knowing that our prayers by our prayers, God works out his plans. God has ordained that the realities of the Lord's Prayer, for example, break in and, and find progress as a result, as the direct result and outcome of your prayers. All that to say, your prayers mean something. Your prayers do something in God's unfolding plan for creation. And this is why Jesus taught us to petition the Lord, hallowed be your name, because our prayers to God do something when we pray that God would actively hallow his name. And by that we mean visibly demonstrate his holiness, his glory, his honor, his perf perfections, his supremacy, his love in and to the world. We pray that God glorifies himself in all of his perfections to all of the world. When we pray this, 
It is the engine by which God actually does act to glorify His name in all of the world. So your prayers mean something. Your prayers are effective. So get praying. This is one of our great duties as children of God. One of our great responsibilities as those adopted into the family of God. It is one of the great privileges of being God's people. And it is one of the great ways that we contribute to His excellent and marvelous plan. This is why we pray, Your kingdom come. We petition the Lord, begging Him for the repentance of Israel. We beg the Lord for the arrival and return of King Jesus. We plead for the establishment of His kingdom on earth, for the fulfillment of all of His promises to Israel. And we implore Him to bring about the unparalleled riches that will come to the world by a repentant Israel serving King Jesus according to her calling. So we get praying. Because this kingdom will only come, will only arrive as the Lord works it all together, as He works it all out, because you prayed. And we pray, this is why we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We petition the Lord, we pray to the Lord, we pray that He would bring about the day when His revealed will, His perfect and holy will, is fully obeyed, joyfully and completely this perfect joyful obedience this is going to characterize the eternal kingdom and the lord is using your prayers saints the lord is using the prayers of his people all over the world to bring things ever closer to this final crowning fulfillment so that's why one of the major reasons why we pray Because the Lord has so crafted a system whereby His plans and His decrees are carried forth by the prayers of His people. But that's not all. We also pray to the Lord because by so doing, by our prayers, we reveal our trust and our reliance upon God. When we pray, we reveal our recognition of the fact that it is God who is in charge. That it is God whose plan and whose will are perfect. It is His will and His plan that are unquestionably good. Prayer reminds us every time that we engage in it that He is God and we are not. Prayer reminds me And it ought to remind you that we are poor, we are needy, and we are dependent. And this, no matter how much of the world's goods you or I possess, we are all empty-handed before the Lord. We can have everything in this world. We can have so much. And while those earthly possessions might impress everyone around us, they do not impress the Lord. And when we come before Him, There will be nothing in our hands to bring aside from Christ's righteousness. And so prayer reminds us of these facts. And so as we pray like Jesus taught us, we ask the Lord to provide our daily necessities. We praise Him for for our salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. And at the same time, we plead and petition him for the strength to forgive other people in the same manner that he's forgiven us. 
And we appeal to Him for the strength to fight the good fight against sin and temptation. And we pray these things because God has ordained that prayer is the key to the opening of God's storehouse of help in times of need. Listen, saints, hear it again. Our prayers, your prayers, my prayers do really and truly impact both the huge workings and events of the world as history unfolds, and they impact the daily blessings and turnings of your life. As we pray, we draw near to God. And, the, and James wrote in his letter, draw near to God, and the, lot, the result of our drawing near to God is, he will draw near to you. And there's a third reason as well. I know I said two, but there's a third reason. We also pray, not only because God has ordained his movements to come about by your prayers, not only because it reveals our trust and reliance upon the Lord, but also because prayer brings us peace. Scripture tells us that as we pray, the Lord guards our heart. He guards our heart with his peace. As the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Philippian church, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 to 7, we read this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So those are the three reasons why we pray. And so as we come to the second half of the Lord's Prayer, we need to realize that when we pray for our daily bread, and when we pray that the Lord would forgive us our debts, and when we pray for the Lord not to lead us into temptation, these are the engines by which God actually accomplishes those things in our lives. He has ordained it to be so. And so in this, the Lord's Prayer, modeled to Jesus, modeled by Jesus to his disciples, meaning those who were sitting at his feet on learning from him on the day that he prayed it, and all who have prayed it, all who have studied it, all who have pondered it from that day to this one, the Lord has revealed the great requests that ought to flow from our hearts when we pray. <clears throat> we captured three of them in the first set of petitions. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth. <clears throat> and this morning, we come to the second set of petitions that we bring to the Lord in prayer. And in these three petitions, Jesus calls on us to pray for three things. First, to pray and trust for his provision of our daily necessities. Second, to pray for the forgiveness of our sins and, for the forgive, and to pray for the strength to forgive those who sin against us. And third, to pray for the strength to fight the battle against sin and temptation that so constantly assails us. Those are the three things that we're going to look at this morning, but we're going to look at them all in summary fashion because each of them is covered in greater detail in other places throughout the Gospel of Matthew. 
So we will be looking at them in greater detail as we move forward, but today it will be summarizing all three. So look at verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. This will be more fully examined in Matthew chapter 6 when we learn about, when we learn, when Jesus uh, declares, do not be anxious about anything but by prayer and petition. Remember that, 625, moving forward. But for here, I want you to notice a few things. <clears throat> I want you to notice the communal aspect. Like we said before, notice the communal aspect of this prayer. Our prayers for supply are not limited to our own selves. Did you see, did you see that? We pray not only for the Lord to meet our daily need, like individually, but for the Lord to meet the daily needs of every believer. And bread, you see that, give us this day our daily bread. Bread in this context is not limited to food alone. It's a picture of your daily necessities. He doesn't actually just mean a hunk of bread, a loaf of bread. But he refers to the necessities of life. And as we will see in a few weeks, some of those necessities uh, from the lips of Jesus include what we eat, what we drink, what we wear. But it's not, again, simply the supply of our needs, but also our dispositions as well that we pray for. We are praying to the Lord for godliness with contentment as he gives us our necessities. Because this, wrote the Apostle Paul in his letter to the to Timothy is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we are asking the Lord to give us what we need day by day by day by day. And the faith to recognize that we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. And that if we have food and clothing, said the Apostle Paul to Timothy, with these we will be content. So always, as you petition the Lord for your daily necessities, the call is to trust in His providing hand. The call is to express your gratitude and thankfulness for His gracious care in your life. The great example of the Lord's blessings the, Lord's, the great example of the Lord's concern for the daily necessities of life is found in Israel's wilderness wanderings. You remember, when Israel left Egypt, they left Egypt full of joy, singing songs of praise to the Lord and dancing in celebration. And Moses composed a song to the Lord and he led the entire congregation of Israel in the singing of that song. And Miriam, Aaron's sister, she grabbed her tambourine in hand and she started jumping around and playing it and dancing and all the women followed her, joined in and the mood among the peoples of Israel on that day was one of joy as here for the very first time in centuries Israel was free from enslavement and set at liberty by the powerful working of the Lord. But it didn't take long, did it? It didn't take long for the harsh realities of life in a desert wilderness to kick in. As they traveled, the text tells us, they traveled for three days without any sign of water, growing ever more thirsty by the hour, until they came to a place called Mara. And finally, they beheld with their eyes the most wonderful sight 
When you are supremely thirsty, what is the most beautiful sight in the world? Water, right? And here it was, water to quench their thirst. But one problem. The water, when they attempted to drink this water, it was bitter, the text tells us. Not just a little bit bitter, not just slightly bitter, but tremendously bitter. So bitter that they couldn't do anything other than spit it out. So bitter that they couldn't drink it. So bitter that they began to complain. And so, less than a week into their newfound freedom and liberty, these people, these Israelites, the same people that were just a week ago singing and dancing with tambourines and jumping around, the same people who witnessed the Lord's delivering power, the Lord's mercy toward Israel, grumbled and complained about Moses, saying, What shall we drink, Moses? Now, it's easy to be hard on these guys, right? It's easy to look at them and say, you guys, what a, you guys are morons, man. You just saw God do these amazing things, but don't be too hard on them. Because here's the reality, and here's why we must pray this prayer. Every single one of us is one season or one difficulty away from grumbling against the Lord, grumbling against his leaders, and grumbling against his provision. Don't be like Israel, but don't judge them too harshly because they're simply a mirror into your own soul. And when the Lord heard their grumblings, Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord, who is the giver of good gifts, the provider of our needs, showed Moses a nearby hollowed-out log. Like, you'd never expect that, right? You'd never expect this log to be how the Lord would supply for the people, but this is what he did. And so Moses threw the water from this bitter pond into the log and it turned the water from terribly bitter to wonderfully sweet. The God of Israel supplied their need. The God of Israel continued to supply their need, providing water for them every single day, a daily supply of life-sustaining water, their immediate and consistent need. Without this gift from the Lord, the Israelites would have perished in the wilderness. They would have died from thirst and have been eradicated from the earth. But the Lord who gives us this day our daily bread provided for the Israelites. And it wasn't just water. Because as Israel continued her wilderness wanderings, eventually, whatever food they might have had, whatever supplies they might have possessed, dwindled. Either that or their ability to find food sources dried up. And the people grew hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. Now, if you know anything about hungry people, they grumble. Wives who are sitting next to your husbands right now, you can look over them to them and say, it's true. Give them a little bit of an elbow. When you're hungry, you get hangry. And that's exactly what the Israelites did. These hangry people grumbled against Moses again. Less than three months now into their newly purchased freedom and liberty, won for them by the Lord... They complained and they muttered to Moses these words. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt 
when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And once again, the Lord, gracious and merciful, the compassionate provider, the satisfier of our need, addressed the people, promising once again to supply their need because Moses went to him in prayer. And the Lord said this, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven. I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. In other words, the Lord gave to Israel her daily bread. Now, would they be content with this? Would it be enough for them that the Lord met their need? Would they thank Him? Would they praise Him? Would they lift up their voices in gratitude for his bestowal of food to them day by day by day? No. They disobeyed and they tried to take more than their share. They tried to take more than had been outlined by the Lord. He commanded them to gather enough to meet the needs of the day and on the sixth day to gather a double portion in order to avoid working on the Sabbath. So what happened? Those who listened to the word of the Lord, their needs were satisfied. And those who lacked trust in the Lord's provision of day by day, they tried to keep some of this manna that came from heaven. They tried to keep some of this bread that came down. And you know what happened to it? It turned rotten. This is what we read in Exodus 16. It says this, This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it the bread. Each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer. An omer is about two liters by Canadian measurements. According to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it over till morning. And it bred worms and stank. Why keep it till morning? Why were some of them concerned about keeping this manna till the morning? Because they lacked trust in the Lord's daily provision. They lacked trust in the fact that our God is a God with a giving hand. This people was truly dependent on the Lord's daily provision, truly dependent on the generosity of our Lord. And when they lacked trust, when they sought to go beyond His care, when they sought to supply for themselves, just in case, right? Just in case the Lord doesn't come through. The manna that they kept stunk, bread worms, and rotted. When we pray to the Lord to give us our daily bread, we are asking Him, not only to provide for us, but to keep us from collecting and holding on to stinking, rotting, worm-riddled manna. What is it that you possess? What is it that you cling to 
that leads you away from a daily trusting dependence upon the Lord, that leads you away from daily gratitude to the Lord? In what ways are you trying to tuck things away just in case the Lord doesn't come through? It's rotten manna. It's a worm factory. And it has, it has a, a distinct spiritual stink. Trust the Lord and ask Him to provide your daily bread. And this is difficult for us because our experience is not, or generally not like that of Israel. And we, so we must be very careful about this. We must be always on guard against this lacking of trust and lacking of gratitude to the Lord. Because we live so much differently than they did, don't we? That we aren't roaming around in the wilderness. We don't live such a hand-to-mouth existence as they did, like many in the world do today, like most throughout history have. It used to be, and it is in many ways, that when people get a hold of something, when they got a hold of some rice, or when they get a hold of a cabbage, or when they get a hold of an apple, as soon as that's in their hand, it goes right to their mouth in order to stave off starvation for another day. Unlike Israel, who was only ever a few days away from empty, hungry, growling stomachs, only ever a few days away from starvation, we live generally pretty well, don't we? Our fridges are full, our pantries are full, our cupboards are full, or they at least contain enough food for the next few days. Unlike many who don't know where their next meal will come from, we at times are busy about planning our meal selections for the next week. Unlike many who eat whatever they can get their hands on, we can be picky and finicky with our food choices to the degree that when we go to other people's houses to eat, we furnish them with a nice long list of things that we won't or don't eat. This is something new in history. Like I, we, just, we just yesterday put a freezer downstairs in our pantry because our freezer that's on the fridge is too small to hold all the boxes of chicken nuggets and fish sticks, right? Now, this is not meant to guilt anyone, but it is meant to shake us up a little bit. Who do you thank for such blessings? Do you remember to be thankful for such blessings? When your pantries are overflowing, without that relentless, constant, everyday reminder of an empty cupboard at the end of the day, a situation that will cause us, would cause us to fall on our knees in desperate prayers of petition to God, we can easily forget that he is the source of every blessing and we ought to be thankful to him for it. We can easily forget that he is the giver of all good gifts and we can start to trust in our own efforts, can't we? We can start to believe that it's by the work of my hands that I have achieved such wealth and such abundance in my home. And this is a mindset that we ought to be on guard against because the Lord warned the Israelites clearly about this mindset when he brought them into the land, saying this in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17 to 18. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and, my, and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. 
You shall remember God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth. And James, in the New Testament, reiterated the principle writing in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And so as we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we pray for the Lord's supply continued supply of our daily necessities and we reveal our dependence upon him and trust in him as giver and we reveal our gratitude to him for being the one who provides everything we have. And as we pray this, we petition the Lord, you decide what is needful for me. Don't give to me according to my greed or or according to what I think I need. Give me what I actually need. I used to know people of a more charismatic persuasion who would put pictures of things that they wanted on their walls and trust the Lord would bring them to them, right? These could be expensive motorcycles, expensive cars, those types of things. And I remember thinking, how communal is that? You're praying for your own motorcycle. The prayer here is that God's saints, the needs of God's saints all over the world including you, would be met. Motorcycles are not needs. Lamborghinis are not needs, right? But that's sometimes what people pray for. And so we pray, Lord, I don't want you to give to me according to my greed. I don't want you to give me what I think I need or what I think I want. I, I, my heart can be way too deceitful to be trusted with that. I pray, Lord, that you would give the necessities of my life according to what you deem those necessities to be. And you know what? The Lord might very well give great comforts and great luxuries to his people because he is a great gift-giving God, but our prayers are more moderate than that. And so this prayer guards us against two errors that we've seen so far. The error of grumbling against the Lord in a lack of trust, but also the error of forgetting that God is the source of our blessing. And so Agur, the writer of Proverbs chapter 30, prayed against both of these errors and petitioned the Lord with these most wonderfully wise words. Something you should probably open your Bible to and highlight because you should remember these words in your prayers. They're beautiful, wonderful. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7, Agur prays this to the Lord. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. And listen to this. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Agur desires God would provide what God determines needful for Agur and provide it in such a way that Agur is never tempted to forget God in his abundance or curse God in his lack. 
So that is number one, the first summary prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. And Jesus moves on in verse 12 to the next uh, prayer request, the next petition, which is, forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And then verses 14 and 15 are a, um, a, 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 an explanation, an increased explanation of verse 12. So we'll include them here. So we'll read that again, 12. Forgive us our debts as we, have, we also have forgiven our debtors, in verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So here, our prayer is for the forgiveness of our own sins and for the power to forgive those who sin against us. And this will be a... Uh, a regular um, occurrence or subject brought up throughout the Gospel of Matthew. But as we come to this prayer, as we come to this petition, we are pleading with the Lord and asking the Lord to forgive us for our debts and transgressions. Those are two different words, and we'll explain what they mean in a minute. Right? In verse 12, the word is debts. In verse 14 and 15, the word is transgressions. They're two different words. We pray for the power also... Like we, we ask the Lord to forgive us for our debts and transgressions and we pray for the power to forgive others the debts and the transgressions that have brought, they have brought against us. Now, some have asked, <clears throat> why do we have to ask for forgiveness in our Christian lives when we, upon faith in Christ, are completely and totally forgiven by our Father in heaven? Now, just like the question you guys asked me in the first one, this also is a great question, and I'm glad you asked. In John 13, Jesus gives us a picture of why. In John 13, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, rose up from dinner with his disciples. He filled a basin with water, wrapped a towel around his waist, and began washing the feet of his disciples in turn. Now, Jesus is the man of true authority. He is the man of true power. And in that authority and in that power, he freely took on the role of a servant. His entire reason for taking on flesh and making his dwelling among us was to serve. Ultimately, to serve his people by setting them free from their enslavement to and the penalties of the sin that they have committed. To ultimately secure their freedom and their liberty at the cross. And on this night, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. This is an example that he, met, he gave to them. It's an example of their, the necessity for them to be servants to one another. But also, it was a pointer to the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Passion meaning the, the events leading up to his cross, his cross, and his death. And it's by this act of menial service by Christ for the disciples that would point to that cross work. And at the cross, he doesn't just wash your feet. He washes everyone who believes in him completely fully and totally clean. And you see, on this night, not in a million years would the disciples have expected their rabbi, their teacher, 
to rise and take upon himself the shame, the cultural shame and the cultural humiliation of washing another's feet, especially that of an inferior. That just didn't happen in Jewish culture. It didn't happen in Roman culture. But Jesus had no concern for the social niceties of his day. Jesus had no concern for the cultural proprieties of the times. And he shattered them all by taking on the garb of a slave and serving in what culture deemed to be the most disgraceful and degrading way. By the unheard of act of a superior washing the feet of their subordinates. And Peter, the ever-dramatic one, if you read the Gospels, you will see that Peter is quite fiery and dramatic. Taking all of this in, as Jesus comes to him, pipes up, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus looked Peter square in the eyes and said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You see, if anyone isn't washed by Christ, and in this context the word washed means cleansed from their sin. It points to the reality of being cleansed from their sin. A cleansing that is only available in Christ and only accessible by grace through faith in Christ. If one isn't washed and cleansed in this way, they have no part with Jesus. They have no part in Jesus. They are not a child of Jesus. They have no future inheritance with Jesus. And so we pray for the washing of Christ. We pray for the forgiveness of our sins by grace through faith in Christ. As a number of saints throughout Scripture have also prayed. One example is that of David. In Psalm 51, he prayed this after his grievous and wicked sins with Bathsheba saying, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And the Apostle Paul also, in his first letter to the Corinthians, reminds them of the wonders of this washing. When he wrote this in chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor, nor drunkards, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God and such past tense. But... You were washed. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This washing is very important. And so Peter, hearing the words of Jesus, hearing Jesus say, if I don't wash you, Peter, you have no part in me, swings the pendulum in the complete opposite direction saying, okay then, Lord, not only my feet, but my hands and my head also. In other words, give me a total cleansing, Lord. Wash me. And then Jesus said these very interesting words in response in John 13, 10. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? 
The meaning here is that when you truly come to Jesus Christ, when you truly place your eternal destiny in his hands, when you truly trust that he died in your place to cleanse you and to wash you from your sin, to secure your forgiveness, you are clean. You are washed. You have been spiritually bathed. You are holy in his sight and declared righteous by our Father in heaven. We still, however, live in this world and must live our lives in continual repentance and continual confession of, for our sins and failures that we commit in the here and now. It's something that reveals this recognition of the fact that you must turn to God always in repentance. We can only come to Him and say, forgive me, Lord, for the things that I've done at, when we are truly and for, fully forgiven before God. Nobody ever wants to do that unless you're truly forgiven. If I could crudely illustrate it, it's like camping. Camping at one of those KOA-type campgrounds, you know, where they have like a shower <clears throat> there that you can go in and use. Not like a lake. You go and shower in the lake, you never seem to fully get clean, right? You always have a little bit of that sand and that grit on you. It's gross. But if you go to the showers, you know that's like fresh water, or maybe it's water from the lake, maybe I'm just deluding myself, I don't know. You go in, you soap up, you clean off, and you're clean. Dry yourself off, you get ready to go, and then you got to put your, either your sandy shoes back on or you got to walk to your tent through sand and through dirt. And while you're f fully clean, guess what gets dirty on the, the trek from KOA shower to tent? Your feet, right? And they need, they need a little bit of toweling off. And so you grab the towel and you, or you spritz them with a little bit of water. It is this, crudely speaking, this little spritzing of the feet, even though the rest of the body is clean that Christ is referring to. And in this petition of forgive our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. God has forgiven us if we truly believe. But we pray to him, forgive us, forgive us, forgive us, because our feet get dirty as we travel through the world. The sand of the world is sticks to our feet and we ask him to continually just rinse it off, Lord, please. <clears throat> but not only are we asking the Lord to forgive us for the sins that we've committed against him and for the debts that we've incurred against him, on top of that, we petition the Lord for the power to forgive others their debts and their trespasses against us. Now you see, a true grasp of the forgiveness of God the true grasp of the forgiveness that God has given to us issues in the forgiveness of others. In fact, if you will look closely at the text, you will see that the petition actually assumes that as one who comes to the Lord in prayer for their own forgiveness, they've already forgiven their fellow brothers and sisters who've sinned against them. Do you see that? Do you see how it's written in the past tense? as we also have forgiven. See, as they realize the ones that they might otherwise hold bitterness to must be forgiven as they come to the Lord in prayer and plead with Him for forgiveness. So your constant coming to the Lord in prayer for forgiveness is meant to remind you to let go of and to release the debts that people have built up with you. 
recognizing that these people that you're holding your debts against, they're of equal worth in God's sight. It's humbling, isn't it, to realize that? Because one of the main reasons that we hold on to bitterness against a fellow brother or sister in the Lord is because we think that we are special in some way. But listen, you're not. I'm not. I am not special. You are not special. When God saved you, here's here's a truth that some people have a hard time believing. God wasn't getting something amazing. No matter who you are, when God forgave you in Christ, he brought to himself a vile, undeserving sinner. And he cleansed you. And he adopted you because his grace is amazing. Because he is wonderful. And those who recognize this fact that we are nothing and that God's deliverance and salvation came to us in spite of us, not because of us, and that his mercy pours forth out of his pure and undeserved gracious disposition towards us, those who truly grasp this highly appreciate and value that grace. And in turn, as a result, extend it to others who, in all truth, sin far less against you than you have against the Lord. But some might say, yeah, but pastor, you, you don't know what they did to me. Well, look at the two words that are used here in these verses. Debts and trespasses. These are two different words that capture the full range of sinful conduct. The Lord forgave us our debts. You see that? Debts here mean those tremendously evil wrongdoings that incur a bill that must be paid. A bill that we are unable to pay. A bill that no matter how much dishwashing you might do in the back because you forgot your wallet can never be repaid. And when we petitioned him for forgiveness, the Lord erased our debt. The Lord canceled our debt. The Lord dismissed our debt. The word forgive here can even mean he, he threw it away. He hurled it away with great vigor and great gusto. And so in like manner, we are called to also to cancel, to dismiss, to throw away the debts that, we've, that we, are, we've, we are holding against those who've committed wrongs against us. But it's not only debts. The word trespass is also here, and that's a different word. And this word means anything from accidental slips and faults all the way to reckless, willful sins conscious violations against what is right. So these words remove any and all limitations that we might place on forgiveness. And so, when we pray to the Lord here, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors, what we are praying for is the supernatural capacity to forgive others as God has forgiven us. And I want you to recognize something. That to cherish the sin of unforgiveness in our hearts, to hold on to it, to convince yourself that it's right, to deceive yourself into the maintenance of it, means 
that the Lord will not listen to your prayers. David made this clear in Psalm 66 when he said, Come and hear. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and, a, and high praise was on my tongue. But if I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Which would you rather? Do you want the Lord to listen and to attend to the voice of your prayer? Or do you want him to turn his ear from your prayer? Known hypocrisy, like that of unforgiveness and bitterness, held against a fellow member of the household of God, creates a barrier in your prayer life between you and your God. May it never be. So just a couple of points to summarize. When we pray this petition, five things. First, it points us to Christ, who is our great example and brings, causes us to strive to imitate him. Jesus, who when reviled, did not revile in return. Jesus, who when fastened to the cross, instead of calling heaven down against those guilty of nailing him there, those guilty of insulting him and slandering him while he remained there, prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Two, when we pray this petition, we recognize that we not only ask for the Lord's forgiveness and not only pray for the supernatural strength to forgive those that have sinned against us, but we recognize that we owe, that's a strong word, we owe each other the debt of love. Romans 13.8, Paul wrote that. We owe each other the debt of love. Whether you feel like your fellow brother or sister deserves it or not, I owe all of you love. You owe each other love. Not because of anything they've done, not because they've earned it, Instead, because the Lord loved us and sent Christ to save us when we hadn't deserved it and when we hadn't earned it and our love models Christ's. Third, when we pray this prayer, we are reminded, we are reminded that we ought to refuse to hold grudges because grudges, holding grudges is a wicked and grievous sin. And those who do so are utter fools robbing themselves of their joy in the Lord. Fourthly, when we pray this prayer, we reveal our desire to glorify and honor God by our forgiving others as we ourselves have been forgiven. And fifthly, and I want you to hear this, when we pray this prayer, it ought to remove our arrogant pride. If, and hear me here, if the death of Christ was enough to satisfy the justice of God and turn his wrath away from me and away from you, it ought also to satisfy and turn away your wrath from your brother and your sister. It is the absolute height of human arrogance to hold on to that which the Lord himself in Christ has forgiven. Who do we think we are? To do such a thing. Who do you think you are if you are holding on to unforgiveness against something that has been forgiven by Christ? Who do you think you are to do that? 
So first, give us this day our daily bread. Second, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And third and finally, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Our prayer here is for the strength to fight the battle against sin and temptation. This is the, and the, the way that the phrase is translated into English can cause some confusion, right? It can make it seem as though God is somehow responsible for leading us into temptation. But that, however, cannot be the case because it would contradict the truth of Scripture found elsewhere. For example, James, who wrote... In, in chapter 1, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. So you see, God is not the author of temptation. And by temptation here, we mean that internal desire to sin as a result of the circumstances or the situation around us. No, James continued, and he told us the truth here. It's one of the things I love about the Bible. It tells the truth, always. James said in verse 14 and 15, each person is tempted. Here's the reason why each one of us is tempted. When he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. God does not tempt us to sin, we are tempted by our own desires. We are tempted by the luring and the enticing of our own desires in response to the stimulations, the deeds, the dispositions, the promises, and the conduct of the world around us. And these desires, if not put to death, if not warred against, if not fought against, these passions will issue in our death. Not making war against your sin is a sign that you lack the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit hates sin. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. And so the true believer hates their sin and petitions the Lord for the strength to fight the battle against it. Against that wicked and terrible enemy, praying Lead me not, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, this petition means, as it is rightly noted in other translations, give us the spiritual strength to fight against our sin. Give me, give us the strength not to yield ourselves to sin, not to succumb to the deceitfulness of sin. Lord, please do not abandon us in our fight. Give us the tools, give us the resources to defeat the pressures and the strategies that sin has for our downfall. Now, just to make it clear, you and I will never gain full victory over sin in this life. But that doesn't mean we ever lay down our weapons against it. That does not mean we ever relax the battle. And when we do give in, it is not ever because there was no way out, right? I've heard people kind of say, I just, I just, there was no option, I can't do it. I can't seem to defeat the sin in my life. I can't seem to get out from under this sin. There's always a way out. It is never because you do not have God's resources at your disposal. You do. Ephesians 6, God has given us the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 6. But we will give into it sometimes, and when we do, 
we go back to petition number two. Forgive me, Lord, for my debts. And the Lord, when you come to him in in asking for forgiveness, guess what? What does the word of God tell us? When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us those sins. But we never lay down the, the arms that we take up against sin. And along with the resources that God has given us, he always, God always, in capital letters, always provides a way out. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So listen, in every temptation that assails you, every single one, there is a path, two paths before us. The path that follows the lure and the enticement to sin and the path of the Lord's provision to escape from that temptation. And so when we pray, we are praying, Lord, show me the path of escape. Lord, empower me to take the path you've provided for me to get out of this temptation. But far too many of us don't ever look for the path of escape but rather give in to the lure, give in to the enticement, and then say, well, you know, life's hard. The faithful preacher, Albert N. Martin, spoke on this subject and stated the seriousness of this fight quite powerfully when he said this, Do you not know true and saving repentance? Or do you know true and saving repentance? Or do you just occasionally whimper in the closet when your conscience gets so active you can't live with it? And you wail and cry and ask God for a little help and then you go right back with your hand and your eyeball still firmly attached. Oh yes, once in a while you may take a dull parry knife and scratch your hand a little bit and occasionally scratch around your eyeballs, but you have not even begun the process of cutting off and plucking out. This is the gravity of the battle. Are you in this battle? Are you fighting this battle? If you are, you require God's Strength. You require God's help. You require the resources of the Lord to help you avoid relinquishing yourself to your temptations. And this petition is not an ask to be free from the temptations of the world. We'll never be free. They're unavoidable. They will come. But when we pray for the strength to stand firm, we are asking the Lord, help me stand firm. Help me stand tall. Help me stand in obedience to you when those temptations come. Now, I just want to step back and, and, and ask, this has been a tough year, hasn't it? This last year has been tough for a lot of people. Lockdowns, masks, pandemic, What has this time revealed to you about you? What sins and sinful dispositions have you yielded to over this year that, if times were normal, wouldn't have even been an issue? Perhaps the Lord has brought about this time to reveal your need 
to make this petition strongly. In the same way that full cupboards have a tendency to bring us to forget our dependence and gratitude to the Lord, so does times of consistent normalcy. Right? And all of a sudden, here comes this global issue. Because life can be pretty easy at times. We can get into our, our general uh, schedules. It can be easy when things are going well. But I don't know about you, but I can tell you that this last year has exposed me to me. And it has most likely exposed you to you. And what has this year revealed to you about you? Has it revealed that you lack trust in the Lord and you're more anxious than you could imagine? Has it revealed that you are angry, angrier and more bitter with people who don't see things your way than you thought you might be? Has it revealed to you that you're lazy? Has it revealed to you that you're actually hostile towards the people on, in the mission field? The people that we're supposed to go out and preach the gospel to rather than a minister to them. I've heard lots of conversations where those to whom we are meant to bring the gospel are no longer looked at as souls to be saved, but as obstacles that we must overcome. Has that been revealed to you? Has it been revealed to you maybe that you look on others with suspicion far more than you think you do, wondering about their motives? Has it revealed to you that maybe you're not as forgiving as you thought you were? Has it revealed to you that it only takes one thought, one half of a sentence, one support of this group, or one negation of that group for you not to want anything to do with that person? Has it led to you in the privacy of your own home to partake of private sins, indulging your flesh in perversions and internet immoralities. What is it that this time has revealed to you about you? Pray to the Lord for the strength not to yield to those temptations. Pray to the Lord, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from the evil one. As we pray this prayer, we are praying that God would deliver us from evil, that he would deliver us from the evil one. Lord, keep us alert to the strategies and to the wiles of our enemies, sin, Satan, and our fleshly passions. Help me to recognize and to strangle these enemies to death. Let Give me the power to choke the life right out of the temptations that seek to kill me. Give me the grace to conquer. Preserve us as evil is constantly assailing us both from the inside and outside. I can't, we can't do it on our own. Give us the grace to ruthlessly root out sin. And as Jesus said, Give us the grace to tear out and throw away our right eye if it causes us to sin or to cut off and throw away our right hand if it causes us to sin. Two word pictures that mean do whatever we must to defeat the sin in our life. Lord, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. So in closing, as you pray to the Lord, as you engage in prayer to the Lord, 
realize that you're entering into something tremendously powerful. You're entering into a battle. You're actually entering into the movements of creation's history as you call upon God to do his wonderful work. And so that's why we pray for the Lord to hallow his name. We pray for the kingdom of God to come. We pray that his will would be done. And on top of that, we bring our petitions and we bring our requests to him, praying that he would give us each day the necessities of our life and that he would forgive and cancel the debts that we have incurred against him as a result of our sin and that he would empower us to forgive others in the same manner that he has forgiven us completely. And we pray for the strength to fight the battle against sin as we live on earth. We pray that he would clearly reveal to us the paths out of our temptations, the way of escape so that we can endure and avoid the sin that so repulses him, the sin that you and I, if we truly love Christ, hate so much. So as we pray, may God be glorified. May God be glorified as you call on him in prayer. Amen. Father, we are... We recognize the seriousness of what we do when we come to you in prayer. We recognize that this is no meaningless act, but instead this is the act that you have ordained by which to bring about your good and wonderful purposes. So I pray that you would help us to consistently turn to you in prayer, exalting you and honoring you and revealing our trust in you to take care of us and to provide us with the strength that we so desperately need every single day of our lives. We can't do it on our own. We recognize that it is you who gives us all things. So we praise you and we honor you and we come to you on our knees in trust, thanking you for the privilege of being able to come to you in prayer by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.